Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Trump's tape. The president asks Georgia officials to find votes to overturn Biden's win. Dose delay, a challenging start to the global vaccine rollout. And a Bitcoin bonanza, wild swings in the digital asset after it tops $34,000. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Great to be back with you for a new year, though. I have to say there's been no moderation in the pace so far in 2021. All eyes on the battle against COVID, of course, the battle to vaccinate people as quickly as possible and the battle for power in Washington, D.C. Well, that drama remains a wild card, I think, for markets this week. The state of Georgia will determine the balance of power in Congress and whether the Democrats have free reign with policy going forward, including, of course, more financial aid for now. Despite the uncertainty, investors remain upbeat, as you might perhaps expect. The major U.S. average is set to hit fresh records in early trade today. All the conditions that drove markets higher throughout 2020 remain true today. The Fed, of course, stands ready to do more if needed. The U.S. has agreed billions more in financial aid and IPO and M&A fever also set to continue. We've got a number of deals already announced in the United States today. And after a shaky start... The vaccine rollouts should accelerate too. What about Europe? Well, that's starting the year strong as well. UK stocks are outperforming, buoyed by travel stocks in particular on vaccine and recovery hopes and the nation avoiding a hard Brexit at the end of the year or last year too, despite concerns of tighter lockdowns going forward. To Asia now, Chinese stocks posting solid gains, a private survey showing factory activity still solidly in expansionary mode. Yet there's nervousness if we take a look over at Japan after the government warned it might impose a state of emergency to control soaring COVID cases. We've got the latest on all of this coming up for now, though. Let's get to the drivers and to the astonishing phone call between U.S. President Donald Trump and Georgia state officials, where the president pushes Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find votes that would overturn Joe Biden's election victory. Here's Joe Johns with all the details. The stunning recording of President Trump, in his own words, pressuring the Georgia Secretary of State to overturn the election results in a phone call. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. And flipping the state is a great testament to our country because, you know, and there's, there's, there's just a, it's a testament that they can admit to a mistake or whatever you want to call it. If it was a mistake, I don't know. A lot of people think it wasn't a mistake. For an hour, Trump repeated baseless claims of voter fraud and attacked Brad Raffensperger for refusing to say Trump won the contest in Georgia that he lost. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated because uh, the 2,236 and absentee ballots, I mean, they're, they're all exact numbers that were, were done by 
accounting firms, law firms, etc. And even if you cut them in half, cut them in half, and cut them in half again, it's more votes than we need. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Raffensperger, a Republican and Trump supporter, has overseen multiple recounts and audits of the election in Georgia, each one reaffirming President-elect Joe Biden's victory. Mr. President, the problem uh, you have with social media, they can, people can say anything. No, uh, no, this isn't social media. This is Trump media. It's not social media. It's, it's, it's really not. It's not social media. I don't care about social media. I couldn't care less. Social media is big tech. Big tech is on your side, you know. I don't even know why you have a side, because you should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. The president's conversation after weeks of slamming Georgia election officials. There's no way I lost Georgia. There's no way. We won by hundreds of thousands of votes. I'm just going by small numbers. When you add them up, they're many times the 11,000. But but I won that state by hundreds of thousands of votes. In reality, Biden won Georgia by nearly 12,000 votes. Biden's senior advisor saying the tape shows irrefutable proof of a president pressuring and threatening an official of his own party to get him to rescind a state's lawful certified vote count and fabricate another in its place. And at a drive-in rally ahead of Georgia's Senate runoff races... Vice President-elect Kamala Harris weighed in on the audio. Well, it was, yes, certainly the voice of desperation. Most certainly that. And it was a bald, bald-faced, bold abuse of power by the President of the United States. Trump is set to head to Georgia later today for campaign events supporting the two Republican candidates, Senators Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. This one day before the end of the voting that will determine whether Democrats take control of the Senate. Capitol Hill Democrats and some Republicans outraged by the president's efforts. It has all the elements uh, of a criminal action uh, because you have the president trying to illegally change the results of an election uh, by essentially threatening uh, the Secretary of State and others here. So I certainly think it, it merits a good look. Whether or not people decide to actually prosecute at some point, uh, that's a separate uh, issue. It's disgusting. And quite honestly, it's going to be interesting. You know, all these members of Congress that have now come out and said they're going to object to the election. I don't know how you can do that right now with a clear conscience, because this is this is so obviously beyond the pale is probably not even the way to describe it. And Joe joins us now. Joe, I have to unscramble this for, for an international audience. I do want to ask you how this will all play into the the Georgia runoff elections that we probably would have been talking about if this hadn't have broken over over the weekend. And that's, of course, critical for determining the balance of power in Congress going forward. But there are legal experts here that are saying, look, this is a felony. This is a solicitation of election fraud. What now, Joe? It's pretty incredible and it's pretty stunning if you think about it. The fact of the matter is, number one, on the issue of Georgia, yes, there are concerns that it could affect the Georgia runoff. And the question is anybody's guess. The president has a rally in Georgia. There are some concerns that 
because of this and because of some other factors, that rally will be more about him than about promoting the Republicans who are running to get reelected in the state of Georgia. Of course, the significance of that is that the runoff in Georgia, uh, quite frankly, will determine who controls the United States Senate for at least the next two years. Will it be Democrats? Will it be Republicans? Depends on who gets elected in Georgia. So that's the first thing. But beyond that, there is uh, a real and abiding concern if you talk to some of the legal officials around town here uh, that the president walked right up on illegality in that conversation, both at the state level and at the federal level. Down in Georgia, they have a law that is essentially... Uh, suborning fraud in election. That means encouraging someone to commit an act of fraud in elections. It's illegal in the state. And um, federally, there are also concerns about extortion, which is essentially offering a threat, if you will, in order to get someone to do something or to give something of value, like, for example, the uh, overturning of the election in Georgia. Nonetheless, it's very unlikely, quite frankly, that the president would be charged by a prosecutor. Number one, he's on his way out of office. And uh, number two, it would certainly cause more of a storm in the United States uh, than anything you could imagine at a time when the incoming administration has a lot on its hands, including the issues of uh, coronavirus. So... Uh, bottom line, it's certainly stunning, it's astounding, it's astonishing. But the question, of course, is uh, what's going to be the end result? And the only real end result anybody cares about at this stage is what happens in Georgia. Julia. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point as well, we should be talking about other things, humanitarian crisis, health crisis. And yet we're, we're talking about phone calls. We'll see what happens in Georgia. Joe, great to have you with us for... Uh, as I said, unscrambling all of that. <laughs> Joe Johns, thank you. Yeah. All right. New year, new vaccine. The UK has begun its rollout of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. You're seeing pictures from earlier this morning when 82-year-old Brian Pinker became the first person in the world to receive a dose. Max Foster joins us from Oxford Another one. It's great to see. It's far more simple to distribute, to administer in this case, because it doesn't need to be kept at low temperatures. It's another monumental moment, Max. It really is. So they've already approved the Pfizer vaccine here, of course, a huge fanfare around this, uh, around that. But this is seen as a real game changer, particularly in the UK, partly because they've bought more of it, because it's a UK product designed here at Oxford University. But also it's cheaper and as you say it's easier to store therefore it's easier to transport therefore they they feel they can use this to get a vaccine into care homes which is that top priority for the uk government and they haven't been able to reach many with the Pfizer vaccine, of course. So initially, uh, these vaccines, the AstraZeneca vaccines, are going to be handed out in hospitals like the Pfizer vaccine. But they hope by the end of the week, even, Julia, they could have centres, about a 1,000 centres around the UK, in smaller places, such as doctors' surgeries and uh, in-care homes, for this new vaccine. So it could make a huge difference, and it's desperately needed right now. Max, because there is rumour and talks that there's going to be even tighter lockdowns in the UK. We've all been very focused on this different variant that's spreading more quickly and obviously it's around the world. But talk specifically about what we might see in the UK now. 
Well, if you look at the charts, they're absolutely frightening at the moment mm. because they seem almost like a vertical line upwards. Uh, if you look at the case numbers in the United Kingdom, above 50,000 cases yesterday on Sunday in a single day alone, which is huge. It's pretty much out of control. There's a massive amount of concern about that. Uh, Boris Johnson and his government are looking at these numbers and thinking maybe tier four, the top level of lockdown, isn't working. Maybe areas in tier three need to go up to tier four. He was asked about that today on a hospital visit whilst he was looking at this new vaccine rollout. I'm going to obviously ask you to, to, to wait and we'll, we will be producing uh, everything that we think is necessary to keep people from spreading the, the virus. If you think about it, we've already got a lot of the country in, uh, in tier four, some of it in, in tier three. What we've been waiting for is to see the, the impact of the, of the tier four measures on the, on the virus. And it's a bit unclear still at the moment, but I think there's, you know, if you look at the, the numbers, there's no question that we're going to have to take uh, tougher measures. There you are. It's inevitable, basically, uh, Julia, that the uh, lockdowns are going to get stricter. And it's, it's a bittersweet day, isn't it? You've got the celebration of the vaccine, but things are getting worse. Yeah, short term, huge challenges, longer term reason for optimism. Max Foster, thank you so much for that. Right here in the United States, the chief advisor for Operation Warp Speed saying government officials are looking at ways to stretch the coronavirus vaccine supply, including possibly giving half doses to people aged 18 to 55. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Elizabeth, great to have you with us. Just explain that because it does tie to this variant that the UK has identified and the need simply, I think, behind the scenes to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Right. So, Julia, Dr. Monsef Slawi, he's with Operation Warp Speed, talked to my colleague Sanjay Gupta, and he told Sanjay that they are thinking about doing these half doses for people ages 18 to 55. So you would still get two doses, but the amount you would get, the dosage would be half each time. The thinking is that in earlier trials with with a relatively small group of people, they saw that they did get some antibody response when they gave these half doses. But there's a couple of things to point out relatively small number of people, and they didn't then go and see if these people were less likely to get COVID. It's one thing to look at blood in the lab and say, oh, it looks like something's happening here. It's quite another to say it actually protected them from getting COVID. That work was only done in the phase three three trial with tens of thousands of people, and in there, they use full doses. So I asked Dr. Anthony Fauci about this this morning, and he said, look, before I give an opinion, I want to look at the data. I asked Dr. Paul Offit, who sits on FDA's uh, Vaccine Advisory Committee, and he used the word terrible. He said, I think this is a terrible idea. We didn't test out half doses in the phase three trial. We give recommendations and we authorize things based on phase three trials with tens of thousands of people. That's where the data is, and we should stick with the data. Julia? Yeah, it's so important as well when you're dealing with a lack of trust, when people are already uncertain and afraid. Mm-hmm. You, again, it comes down to the education, the communication. If you're changing things that you've not even, if you've not even tested for, um, Elizabeth. At the same time, just trying to get vaccines out there is is one thing. And Operation Warp Speed predicted 20 million doses of vaccinations by the end of the year, and clearly we're a long, long way away from that. 
Right, we're a long way away. You actually said two different things there, Julian. I think that's so important. So there's vaccine, vaccines available. Are there 20 million vaccines available, ready to go, distributed? That was what they promised by the end of the year. They've got 13. They've got 13, not 20. Second of all, they certainly gave the impression that 20 million people would have shots in arms by the end of 2020, and the number so far is four. So obviously, even farther away from 20. So, you know, of course, huge questions. How did this get so messed up? Part of what got messed up was the communication. They never should have made those promises. I think this will go down as one of the worst communication campaigns in, in U.S. public health ever. I mean, that, that was they really did not handle that well. But in addition, there's the question of why can't we get this rollout happening faster? And I think part of the answer in the United States is that unlike in the U.K. and other countries, there is no centralized authority doing this. It's it's private hospitals, private doctors, it's the government, it's the federal government, it's the state government. It's lots of people trying to coordinate. And sometimes that doesn't always go so well. Yeah, it is a huge, huge country. Elizabeth Cohen, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for that. Thanks, Julia. All right. While the United States struggles, Israel powering ahead in the vaccination drive. Over 10 percent of the population has now received its first dose. You're looking at pictures from New Year's Day when the one millionth dose was administered in the presence of the prime minister. Sam Kiley joins us now from Jerusalem. It's Sam, great to have you with us. In comparison to my last conversation, I think a dense population and small relative size of population helps too. But how is the how are the Israelis managing this? Well, Julia, it's now at uh, just over 12 percent of the population has been vaccinated. Uh, there remains deep, deep concern, though, that the pace of vac- vaccination here won't keep pace with the spread of the covid virus that hit 6000 cases, I believe, uh, in the last 48 hours or so. Uh, new cases, that is, uh, with continuing levels of death tolls rising. And the reason uh, the government here is now considering a possibly a week-long, possibly even two-week-long total lockdown across the country is so that the gains that they've made over this remarkable rollout of the vaccination program don't get lost, don't get overwhelmed. But you ask, how is that possible? Well, Elizabeth there was referring to the United Kingdom and its National Health Service. They've got a similar structures here in Israel. There are essentially four competing organizations that compete for patients within a form of National Health Service, uh, if you like. This is also a nation that is used to mobilizing, most often, of course, mobilizing due to security threats for dangers of incoming bombardment or indeed wars uh, over the years with their neighbors, highly militarized, of course. Uh, and very, very efficient, particularly using young people here, are pretty well drilled. They're famous for their informality, but they're also famous for their efficiency. And there have been some remarkable scenes here, for example, of young people with delegated authority coming to the end of a vaccinating day, finding that they've got excess doses, uh, particularly of the doses that have to be kept at super low temperatures, and giving them out to passers-by. That counts as a vaccination that's not... No vaccination is going to waste. Anecdotally, I've spoken to friends and colleagues who've been along with key workers uh, and been able to pick up uh, extra, or rather not extra, but uh, uh, vaccinations ahead of time to prevent any kind of waste. There are concerns here that the next phase 
uh, within Israel may be slower. And of course, in the Palestinian territory, some of which are under total Israeli control, and I'm not talking about the Israeli uh, Jewish settlements on the West Bank, but the Palestinian areas, they have yet to see uh, any significant rollout of the vaccination campaign. But there are concerns there also, Julia, that if it don't, they don't get a vaccination program working there, of course, there could be, in a sense, some um, COVID blowback into uh, Israeli territory proper. Julia? I was going to ask you that, Sam, actually. Are the Israelis taking responsibility for the Palestinians in the West Bank and uh, Gaza Strip? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very mixed. It's a very complex, a complex uh, structure. But essentially, the Palestinian Authority, which is responsible for the administration of Palestinians in what's known as Area A, which is most of the urban areas, and Area B, which are under Israeli security control, but Palestinian Authority control, uh, the Palestinian Authority is responsible for the health of the population within those uh, territories, and they have yet to really roll out a vaccination program in Area C, which are closer to a total occupation that is administered uh, both in terms of administration and security by Israel. Uh, Palestinian sources are saying, well, it's OK if you've got an Israeli ID card, but you're ethnically Palestinian, you can get an inoculation. But it's very difficult to get one if you've got a Palestinian identification card. We've yet to investigate directly on that. That is the reports that we're getting from uh, individuals on the ground. Julia. Sam, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that report there. Sam Kiley from Jerusalem. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A British judge has rejected a U.S. request to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, ruling that such a move would be, quote, oppressive. Assange's legal team will apply for him to be released on bail pending an appeal. The United States charged Assange with under espionage under the Espionage Act for publishing classified military and diplomatic communications. Iran says it has restarted uranium enrichment with a target of 20% enriched uranium at its Fordow nuclear facility. That would breach the nuclear deal between Iran and the international community implemented back in 2016. The International Atomic Energy Agency says it's monitoring Iran's activities and will report to members today. All right, so to come here on First Move, can Amazon deliver the robo-cab? We speak to the woman leading the effort and its first driverless taxi is unveiled. And Bitcoin boom, the cryptocurrency hits an all-time high before plunging. We take a look at the roller coaster start to 2021. Stay with us. Welcome back. Japan now considers declaring a state of emergency in the greater Tokyo area as COVID-19 cases surge. The country reporting more than 3,100 new daily infections. Selena Wang is live in Tokyo for us. Selena, just explain what we're talking about in terms of an emergency response here. What will it mean in terms of lockdown and how many prefectures are we talking about? 
Well, Julie, something that I don't think is widely understood is that Japan's government does not have any legal abilities to enforce mm. these COVID restrictions. So declaring a state of emergency simply gives local governments the ability to urge their residents to stay inside. But even though this has no legal enforcement, Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga has been very reluctant to take any steps that would potentially hamper the economy. He is saying publicly that he is considering this declaration. This is after the Tokyo governor and governors from three neighboring prefectures all urged the prime minister to do so. But the prime minister's approval ratings have been plummeting over his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. One health expert described his response to me as, quote, slow and confusing. In fact, Julia, up until late December, the government had been encouraging people to go out and travel and eat, saying that you can go out, but just take precautions voluntarily. This all happening as Japan continues to report record high cases. The national cumulative total is now nearing a quarter million cases. Yeah, so they're dealing with the current crisis now. And as you said, it's, it's pretty challenging. Then there's the rollout of the vaccination program. And Selena, I was reading over the weekend in the medical journal, The Lancet, that actually Japan ranks among the countries with the lowest vaccine confidence in the world. We often talk about the anti-vaxxers here in the United States, but it's a challenge for Japan too. What more can you tell us about their vaccination plans? Julia, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up that Lancet study, because actually, if you look at the data, it's pretty interesting. It shows that fewer than 30 percent of people in Japan strongly agree that vaccines are safe and effective. Compare that to actually at least 50 percent of Americans, according to this Lancet study. Now, this cautious feeling of vaccination in Japan is really driven by a history of vaccine safety scares as well as concerns about potential side effects. And in Japan, in addition to this challenge they have to face of convincing the populace that the vaccine is safe and effective, they're also far slower than some other countries to roll out their plan. The prime minister said that they plan to start vaccination in late February with those medical frontline workers first in line as well as elderly people. And in Japan, the stakes here are incredibly high because when whether or not the Olympics go forward as planned largely hinges on how quickly Japan, as well as the rest of the world, can vaccinate their populations. And even though Japan has reported far fewer cases than parts of Western Europe, as well as the United States, the fact of the matter is that whether or not Japan can host the Olympics depends on their ability to curb COVID. And this is really their last chance, Julia. Officials in Japan have said that if the games are not held this summer, there will be no further postponement. It will just be canceled. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Very, very concerning, I have to say. I know they've got high hopes of trying to get it back on track, but yes, a worry. Selena Wang, health first, as always. Thank you so much for that update there. All right, we're counting down to the market open. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stocks are up and running on the first trading day of 2021 and the bulls begin the year firmly in command. All the major averages at records, as you can see in front of you, all this adding to last year's already impressive gains driven higher by a stunning 43 percent rise in the Nasdaq, the heavy tech heavy sector. In many ways, it was Tesla's year too. shares of the electric car giant soaring by more than 740%. Musk and company reporting 2020 deliveries over the weekend too that beat Wall Street expectations and its shares also at fresh 
records today as well. We've also got Merger Mania in focus. An $8 billion deal in the industrial tech space was announced today between Teledyne and Fleer Systems. We've also got MGM Resorts in focus. They've made an $11 billion bid for Entain, the owner of UK betting firm Ladbrokes. It is being rejected so far as too low. Wow, lots going on in the business space. Mark Zandi is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, and he joins us now. Mark, great to have you with us. I want to look ahead and talk about what we can look forward to in terms of recovery in in 2021. I was reading your note over the weekend, and what's remarkable is in terms of your economic forecasts, there's very little different to what you were saying actually back in April. Your predictive powers were pretty phenomenal in the face of something so unprecedented. Well, thanks for saying that, Julia. I mean, obviously, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty last year, given the pandemic and policy and the presidential elections and all the things that are going on overseas. Brexit is a good example of that. But yeah, uh, you know, we we, uh, underestimated actually the strength of the bounce back uh, that occurred once uh, business started to reopen uh, early uh, early last year. But but uh, other than that, I think we got the contours of the forecast right. And hopefully uh, we'll get the contours of this forecast for this year right, because we are uh, optimistic. I'm optimistic about the economy's prospects, uh, certainly by mid-year. But by that point in time, the vaccines will have been rolled out to a significant degree. I think the Biden administration will kick into gear here and get, get people inoculated. And uh, we've got that $900 billion fiscal relief package. So there's a lot of things to worry about in the very near term, but I think 2020 should be a pretty good year. So hopefully we're as accurate about 2021 as we were about 2020. Explain how optimistic you are, because I've had conversations with those in the business community and they're talking about a roaring 20s where people are so desperate to get back to life, to get back to traveling, to to spending Mm. money, if they have managed to save money, um, that this will be an incredible rebound. Are you that optimistic, Mark? No, not that optimistic, Julia. I mean, I I do think that, uh, you know, the pandemic, I don't think, is going to end with an event. It's going to be a process. Uh, It's going to take time uh, for people to become convinced that uh, if they go out and do what they were doing before the pandemic, they won't get sick, uh, for people to get inoculated. And, you know, it's not only about what happens here in the United States, but it's uh, about what happens in the rest of the world. And you know, the vaccinations are likely to occur more slowly in many other parts of the world, particularly the emerging parts of the world. So, no, I think this is going to be more of a process. I, I don't think it's going to be, you know, bang, we're off and running. I think it's a, a slow build. Uh, but that's a reasonable debate. You know, it goes to human behavior. That's very difficult to gauge. So, uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll get lucky and we'll have a roaring uh, 20s. I'll take it. Uh, but my sense is, my, uh, my instinct is that this is going to be Uh, uh, it's going to be better, but it's going to take time before we're back to full swing. But a fraction of the time it took for the economy to recover after the financial crisis. I mean, that was a decade. Yeah, yeah, very. That's a good point. Uh, The uh, the economic expansion after the financial crisis uh, a decade ago, that was very, very slow. And it took us almost to the end of the decade, 2018, 2019, before we got back to full employment and people felt really good about things. I, I don't think that's going to be the case here. We'll get back much more quickly. There's a, a number of big differences. Uh, most importantly, the financial system uh, in uh, the pandemic held together very, very well. The Federal Reserve did a marvelous job of keeping it uh, insulated from the chaos in the economy. 
because the financial system is in good shape, credit will continue to flow, and that's going to be key to any economic recovery. Now, obviously, that's a big difference between now and what happened after the financial crisis when the financial system really collapsed and needed a bailout, and it took many, many years for us to get back going again. You know, what's quite fascinating, and, and you point out in your note, too, that actually what you probably got most wrong was stock prices and the sheer rise and recovery that we saw in, in asset values, quite frankly. So if you're an asset owner or you were an asset owner, you predict that actually um, households in the top quintile have more than a trillion dollars in excess savings over and above what they would have done in 2019, simply because they haven't been spending the same way. How much of a kicker is that to recovery versus the lower quintile and the, the proportion of the population, if we stick specifically to the United States, that were beaten up through this crisis and what were still down 10 million jobs? Yeah, you know, the pandemic really created some very significant economic winners. You know, people, higher income households, people could work from home, good health care, owned stocks, owned housing, enjoyed the run up in prices uh, and uh, losers. You know, uh, lower income, generally minority groups, people who couldn't work from home, their health care isn't quite as good, uh, probably don't own any stocks whatsoever. Only half of Americans own any stock whatsoever and may, may not even own their own home. Uh, and so two very different uh, groups of people. And I do think the economy can come back with higher income households spending, uh, you know, what, that bulk of the savings that they accumulated during the pandemic when they weren't out traveling and going to restaurants and ballgames and that kind of thing. But it cannot flourish without everyone participating in the economy's good fortune. So we'll, I think hopefully uh, lawmakers uh, will get, uh, get together uh, in the next few months, uh, pass another uh, package of help for those lower income groups to get them up and running, because unless they do, the, the, you know, the economy can move forward. Uh, we, we, will, we will continue to expand, but it, it just won't flourish. Yeah, you're saying another stimulus package or financial aid package required. Mark Zandi, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Mark Zandi there of Moody's Analytics. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, Amazon maps out the future of autonomous cars with this taxi that comes without a driver. The question is, are we ready for it? That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Could 2021 be the year of the fully autonomous car? There have been plenty of predictions, plenty of stalls and misfires. But this four-seater self-driving taxi made by Amazon subsidiary Zooks could be among the first. And if the idea of a robo-taxi sounds strangely familiar, remember this. Hello, I'm Johnny Cat. Where can I take you tonight? Drive! Drive! Yes, Hollywood got there first. Back in 1990, this robo-taxi starred in the original Total Recall movie. Let's hope the Zooks cab fares better when it launches on the streets of San Francisco and Las Vegas. Aisha Evans is the CEO of Zooks and joins us now. Aisha, fantastic to have you on the show. I have to say, though, when I look at your model of the, the robo-taxi, there's no steering wheel, there's no driver, even a robotic one. So just talk us through the vehicle itself first. 
Thank you for having me, Julia. Uh, look, I mean, we are re reinventing personal transportation to make it safer, cleaner, and more enjoyable. Uh, this is a vehicle that drives. It's not a concept car, by the way. And uh, it's conceived for, for the rider, not for the driver. The AI and robotics take care of the, uh, of the driving. And to us, if a customer steps in and even thinks about driving, we fail. This is really about being transported. And when I'm not using it, somebody else is. You know, it's quite fascinating when I saw the, the purchase by Amazon. Obviously, that brings capital and gives you some financial freedom to invest here. But is the plan still to provide a robo taxi, a ride hailing service for we the consumer versus perhaps last mile delivery that might facilitate Amazon's role in the world? Yes, this is a question we get very often. Look, yes. uh, it, this is about transportation at the end of the day, and uh, moving people is key. This is where the demand is. This is where the greatest benefit to society is, from the environment to it, our vehicle is really conceived for cities. Uh, it's a very small footprint. It's very maneuverable. And yes, we concede that uh, once we can move people uh, reliably and safely, we also will be able to move goods and packages. But the focus, and this is something that's very important for Zooks, we've been consistent at the top of the hype and at the bottom of the valley, we've been super consistent, moving people first. And from there, we can uh, scale and expand. You know, we can talk about the, the technology and we can talk about the, the business model. I want to talk about the business model first just to understand. We've seen ride hailing is a tough, tough business to, to make money in. How is this going to work? You're going to own the fleet and people are just going to pay the fare for traveling around in, in one of these robo taxis. Yes. So this is about really uh, moving people. Like I said, we do not sell vehicles. We sell rides. And, um, you know, the ride hailing business has probably been expensive. Or one of the reasons it's been difficult is because you have to pay somebody to drive you around. That's actually fairly extravagant. And in this case, you own the asset. And basically, somebody pays for the ride. By the time you pick them up and drop them off, somebody else is available and it's running consistently. It's fully electric, runs 16 hours a day, only goes back to base to get charged for two hours and is back on the road. It's such a great point. The, the cost of the driver here, if you can extract that, then, then you're winning. Talk to me about data collection, because I know you're trialing this in, in several cities, three different cities, I believe, at this moment. Talk to me about the data required, the artificial intelligence, the sheer volume of data in order to prove this thing safe, because that's how you get it on the road, ultimately. Yes, it comes down to the, the customer sees the vehicle, but behind the hood, uh, you have the uh, software stack and very important, you have the sensor architecture and compute. And again, safety is uh, paramount here. So we have cameras, LIDARs and radars that are constantly collecting data and looking around us and telling us what's going on around us and also behind objects. We have a very unique sensor architecture that allows you to see things behind other things. And so that all works to together seamlessly to make things happen. Now it's about testing both on private and public roads and then getting to a, a safety bar. I always say until and unless I'm willing to put my two children in this vehicle, we're not ready. And mm -hmm. uh, we're very humble about this. It's about testing and being ready and meeting a very high safety bar. It's a first mover advantage in this market. I mean, people will look at Alphabet with Waymo and again, all the data that they've collected and the experience they have. Tesla and their view and vision over what robo-taxis of the future will look like. 
do you see them as competition? Is there room for all? And where are you in terms of um, bringing this to market? We see them as competitors and fellow travelers. Uh, we take um, this responsibility for this industry collectively. It's, this is something that's going to happen. It's going to really change the way we work, the way our cities are constructed. And so we see them both as competitors and fellow travelers. Um, I think it's been publicly said that this is a multi-trillion dollar opportunity over the long term. So there's room for many of us. There are not going to be uh, 10, 20 companies, but there will be a handful and that's okay and from a commercial standpoint uh, you know the AV industry is uh, quite interesting uh, sometimes people are like oh it's tomorrow morning and sometimes people are like oh it's not for another 10 years I'll put it this <laughs> way launching next year uh, however we're launching a lot sooner than people also realize this is all about the additional testing we're all doing and meeting a very high safety bar I remember having conversations about this back in 2017 and reading articles and it was like 2021, that's going to be the year. But you're saying it's, it's not going to be the year. Will it be under three years? Can we make that prediction in 2021? I think you're getting closer. Yes, it's uh -huh. in that box. Okay, so it, it would have been around 10 years back, back, back then. Aisha, fantastic to have you on the show. Keep us posted. It, it's fantastic. And I, um, I can't wait to see how these work in practice. Thank you so well, much. There. Thank you. The CEO thank, you. thank you. All right. Bitcoin's wild start to 2021, not compared to what we saw in terms of gains last year. Let's be clear. The cryptocurrency surge across the board. We'll discuss next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A meteoric rise followed by a technical correction leading to another rebound. Bitcoin has begun the year like a, well, fucking bronco. That's how. Let me give you a look at how it's trading right now. It rose through $30,000 to an all-time high of more than $34,000. It then fell more than 10% in a matter of hours to below $30,000 and now we're back above that level, but we're still down. Paula Monica has been tracking the digital currency. Wow, that's going to keep you busy, Paul, just watching the general price movements. But what a run this has had. And you only have to look at social media to see the excitement, the celebration, the interest in this digital asset. Yeah, clearly there continues to be a lot of momentum for Bitcoin, which, you know, really hit its stride uh, last year following a big plunge in March, along with just about everything else due to COVID-19. But Bitcoin has surged because there has been more interest from legitimate institutions like Square and PayPal on the financial side, but also big investors like Paul Tudor Jones uh, and Stanley Druckenmiller, you're clearly seeing that Bitcoin, I think this differs from 2017 when I think there was a lot of retail investor interest, but you know, mainstream companies, both in Silicon Valley and Wall Street, might have been a little more wary of Bitcoin. That's not the case now. And this is helping other cryptocurrencies as well. Ether has had a monumental surge in the number two cryptocurrency in the past uh, you know, couple of days. And it's still rallying today, even as Bitcoin has pulled back. 
Yeah, you make a great point. It's not just about Bitcoin. There are plenty other digital assets out there that are benefiting from this wave. Two things I think you mentioned there. The first, which is what we call institutional investors, bigger money that traditionally would have looked at this and did up to very recently say, I'm not touching it with a barge pole, suddenly turning around and saying, I probably missed something. And then you've got also smaller players going, hang on a second, I've got a fear of missing out. And they're all piling in too. And that's creating this huge wave that both investors have been riding. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's really, I think, going to be the next trend to watch, Julia, this year is whether or not more companies decide that they should be investing in Bitcoin in lieu of cash on their balance sheet. MicroStrategy, a software company that has decided to put a lot of its corporate cash into Bitcoin, that I think is something that if you see other big companies start to do that, that will legitimize Bitcoin as well as a store of value for companies that have tons of cash sitting on their balance sheet that earns next to nothing. Bitcoin is obviously volatile, but uh, it definitely earns more than uh, you know, their, you know, what you'd get from a treasury bond or just the dollar. That's for sure. Yeah, and we had um, big crypto investor Mike Novogratz on the show saying, look, you know, this is not going to zero. This may be volatile. This may pull back dramatically. I mean, we had many 30 percent corrections during the period before that we saw as well. Is the difference between what we're looking at today, in addition to everything we just discussed compared to 2017, a greater degree of regulatory clarity as well over individual investors holding things like digital assets, cryptocurrencies? Yeah, I think you're going to see institutions like the SEC uh, play a bigger role with regards to uh, Bitcoin, and that will help. My Still, my biggest concern right now is that even though this time might be different in some respects, this is still a hyperbolic, parabolic move. I mean, we just hit 20,000 a few, you know, just about a week before Christmas. And here we are, Julia, sitting at, you know, nearly 35,000 earlier this morning. That is a move that it doesn't matter what type of environment we're in, what big billionaires are investing in Bitcoin. That's too far, too fast. It's reminiscent of the dot-com stocks in the late 90s, the NASDAQ, early 2000. We probably need a, a healthy correction before Bitcoin can sustainably go higher. And that's why we love you on this show. I actually didn't use the term bucking bronco lightly. (laughs) Yes. In any other asset class, we'd be going, give me a break. So um, this is us saying, give me a break. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. All right. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.